Welcome back to the nationally syndicated Price of Business Show. I'm your host, Kevin Price, talking about you and your business. Always love talking to my guest this segment, Dr. David Dozer. He's been uh, with the program now for quite some time. David, I know you've been monitoring uh, the number of interviews, and, and in fact, uh, I'm, I'm going to just kind of uh, whet people's appetite by mentioning that you, are, you and I are working on a project Based on those interviews, you've done a phenomenal job with, with providing summaries of how we were going to approach things, bullet points, you name it. And uh, uh, I'm not going to go into detail on the project. It, you, you don't want to ruin it, right, with too much detail too early. But uh, you've been doing this with me for a long time. How, how many years now? Well, I count it in terms of uh, segments we've done together, and this is number 31. So if we did one a month, then we've been doing this for several years. Uh, you know, About uh, two and a half up. years, based on yep, my map. Yep. Yep. Wow. Yep. So, and it hasn't seemed that long, and it's always been interesting. Uh, the fact that you bring a, uh, when it comes to your, your political and economic worldview, very, very, uh, as you called yourself, a Berniac. I would never call anyone I like a name like that. And <laughs> oh, you can go ahead. <laughs> but, in my case. But you called yourself that, and I do like you, so I'm going to honor that. And then I'm, you know, I, I, I have evolved over time from a pretty hard right, historically hard right uh, person. Not not what you see with Trump, who's more not really conservative at all. I don't know how people describe him as that. To someone who is really a right of center with the libertarian sprint. Is kind of how I would describe myself. And we are both in great agreement when it comes to this issue of the media. Uh, very rarely do we disagree, and if we do, it's in small, degree, small degrees, not in any sweeping way, which I think is a phenomenal statement and uh, really a great testimony on um, the importance of, of the most important values for a free society, which is what I think our series is all about. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly it. I think we've been talking from the very beginning about the importance of uh, the consumers protecting themselves and becoming sophisticated consumers of uh, news in the digital age where uh, pretty much everybody has a platform and everybody can access social media and all the more reason for the average uh, consumer of news to be ever vigilant about uh, where that information is coming from and what's the quality and so on and so forth, uh, all of which will be discussed in our upcoming book. No question about it, and I, for one, look forward to it. All right, let's get into our, our uh, topic today. Oh, by the way, before we do that, you mentioned your book, which is a phenomenal uh, crime book that uh, reads very much like nonfiction and really translates well to events that have happened over the uh decades, and, and frankly, unfortunately, continues to happen. Uh, real quick details about your book and how people can learn more about it. Well, uh, basically, the book is about uh, death penalty in California, and it's a story of a reporter trying to under, uncover a, uh, a, uh, an effort to uh, uh, basically time uh, multiple executions to benefit a politician. But in it, um, I spent a lot of time talking about the way uh, – News content can be manipulated by uh, politicians and public relations practitioners, which is my teaching area. So I kind of had some uh, inside advantage of being able to talk about the tricks of the trade. And so all of that stuff sort of embedded in the larger narrative of uh, what the uh, what the novel's about. 
Yeah, very good. Let's jump into our topic today. I think it's extremely timely. Um, you know, fits in very well with the news um, that's been happening over the last few months. But frankly, it's an issue that has been on for, frankly, as long as the Jewish race has existed. Yeah, exactly. There's been a, uh, uh, as we describe it uh, in our summary, uh, it's been kind of a dominant narrative, which is a uh, uh, a, a pro-Israeli uh, uh, narrative, and only recently has that uh, come under any kind of uh, systematic challenge. And, uh, uh, and and it's no accident that our uh, our uh, our uh, legislators and our president are so uh, pro-Israeli because the um, uh, the the uh, American Israel. Uh, uh, political Action Committee uh, donates about $21 million a year to various campaigns. And uh, according to their own website, they're 98% successful at uh, at getting uh, pro-Israeli uh, folks uh, elected to public office. And Joe Biden's one of the recipients of that. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like to, if I could, though, uh, just to be real careful, because this is a very sensitive area. And I should say that up front, uh, while my parents were Episcopalians, uh, my daughter-in-law is Jewish, my step-grandkids are Jewish, uh, and by the same token, I have Muslim and Arab friends in the U.S. and in Saudi Arabia. So I'm going to try to time and uh, fashion my remarks so that both you know, my my daughter-in-law and my friends and uh, my Muslim friends in the United States could listen to it and, and not feel like I'm taking sides. Yeah, and good luck with that <laughs> because you can't control <laughs> you can't control how people are going to filter things. And, exactly. Uh, you know, and and I I like to consider myself very nuanced when it comes to this stuff. Um, but right. in the current uh, extreme woke culture we live in, um, I, you know, in my opinion, uh, to a point to where we shut down communication that people can't discuss things, uh, it's too dangerous to do that. It's really, in some ways, the most hostile environment for progress between people of any time I've seen in I don't know how long. And, uh, you know, it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, For me, I'm with you. I totally understand and have compassion for the uh, plight of the uh, Palestinian people. Frankly, they are the, the ones suffering the most from Hamas which the media doesn't seem to understand that or doesn't articulate that. And somehow they act as though Hamas is an extension, even though they were elected, by the way, the last election that they had. And, of course, they haven't had elections since then. <laughs> you, know how, you know how authoritarians work. Um, but, but they were elected by the Palestinian people. How much of that was fair? How much of that was, uh, you know, uh, an honest election? All of that is highly doubtful. But nonetheless, these people are the biggest victims of what's going on uh, in Gaza. You know, and in addition to that, um, I don't think uh, Israel, and I guess in the being careful department, like you suggest, uh, the government uh, hasn't been honest players in this. And they've had an a approach not only to the, to the uh, Palestinian people, but to their own people, where they're trying to essentially... Um, take away the power of the Supreme Court in a country without a constitution, you're talking about zero accountability uh, for the executive branch. That's what we call authoritarian. 
And all of this has to be part of the conversation, but you've got everyone wanting to be in a binary state, uh, dying desperately like a, a child watching a TV show um, to find a good guy and a bad guy when it's just way, way more complicated than that. Uh, absolutely more complicated, and I think that uh, the way I look at it is that the real victims here are Israeli civilians and uh, to a much larger degree in terms of just body count, uh, Palestinian people. Those are the real victims here, and they're both victimized by uh, unscrupulous, corrupt uh, governments that are more interested in pursuing uh, their own agendas than the best interests of either the Israeli people or the Palestinian people. And I think everything you said about the current uh, Israeli government is true. I, uh, in my research, I uh, found a poll late October that showed 76% of Israelis, um, this is after the, after the attack, 76% uh, of Israelis think that uh, uh, the prime minister should step down. Uh, so there's widespread opposition to uh, what the Israeli government and the Israeli military is doing, uh, which isn't to say um, that uh, Israel uh, didn't have a right to, quote, defend itself, close quote. But the problem with that is that it doesn't look like that's what's going on anymore. It looks like uh, they're just pulverizing, uh, the pulverizing the Gaza Strip. And I think one other thing to keep in they're, mind they're is They're trying to make that, it uninhabitable is what it looks like. Exactly. And and so I think one of the things that's difficult as an American taxpayer is I didn't give any money to Hamas. Um, but we gave four, uh, just shy of $4 billion to Israel, and now uh, uh, the Biden administration wants to provide another $14 billion with absolutely no strings attached. And, uh, of course... Uh, uh, Biden is one of the beneficiaries of the AIPAC. They uh, have given him a, quite a bit of money over the years. And, uh, and of course, Which is interesting because it aligns itself with groups like the Heritage Foundation, very, very traditional conservatives that aren't really traditional anymore. <laughs> groups that have kind of gone gone into pretty extreme uh, areas. And that's interesting. That You know, you and I think, I know I've said, I think you've said as well, uh, Biden is really neoconservative when it comes to foreign policy. Yeah, I well, as a as a progressive and uh, nominal Democrat, uh, uh, I did vote for Biden in 2020, held my nose and voted for him. Um, but as we discussed in our last segment, I don't think either of us is going to vote for major parties this year because our our choices are so bad and. You live in a red state and I live in a blue state, and it doesn't matter at all. The, the electoral votes for Texas will go to whichever Republican gets the nomination, and the California electoral votes will go to whichever Democrat gets the nomination. And like I said before, it could be a till of the hun, uh, and uh, it wouldn't matter. Uh, with an R in Texas or a D in uh, California following somebody's name, that's decisive. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question about it. And so it's a very, very interesting dynamic, and I think it's an extremely uh, sad one because we can't have – I mean, I literally had a conversation with someone that, uh, frankly, is near and dear to me uh, about this stuff. And as soon as I began to talk, try to talk in a nuanced manner, frankly, um, that person brought it up uh, about the situation. They literally threatened to start screaming, which I – Yes, I appreciate the warning, right? 
<laughs> the, the overarching conversation was about how impossible it has become, uh, really because of identity politics to an extreme. And let's face it, identity politics has always existed. The more nuanced those conversations are, though, the more constructive and productive they are with not having judgment, but looking at someone like me and say, oh, he's a different de- generation. Uh, he's clearly open-minded. I don't see him actively um, um, being racist or sexist. And in fact, I see him the opposite. But no, if you, you take a, a, a particular position, you are automatically put in that uh, camp. And uh, this is just really impossible. I mean, frankly, that's another conversation we need to have for a future segment is how utterly impossible it has become to be able to have a viable communication on uh, how do we make things better. Because, frankly, the way you make things better is by criticizing. Part of that formula, David, as you well know, is criticizing things in the current situation that don't work. So many of those things have become sacred, including the popular perception among the uh, progressives that to me are illiberal, not liberal, uh, when it comes to things like the Jewish population. Yeah, well, it's, it's you know, it's, it's so tricky because people are using the same words with different, um, uh, assigning them different meaning. Uh, you know, as, uh, as, as you know, uh, when we talk about anti-Semitism, it's just uh, hatred of uh, and... Uh, and and uh, prejudice towards uh, Jewish people, um, you know. Oh, stop! That's what it means. Uh, uh, Zionism, on the other hand, is the belief that uh, Israel is the uh, uh, ancestral home of the Jewish people, and that Israel is a vibrant, modern, uh, democratic country surrounded by hostile, hostile uh, Muslim uh, uh, theocracies that are dedicated to the destruction of Israel. And that's been pretty much a dominant uh, theme in American politics. And it's not an accident that that happened. Uh, and it doesn't require conspiracy theories uh, at all. It's just that's the nature of the, the, political, uh, the political system. But what we see emerging now is a different perspective that goes all the way back to the formation of Israel and the Jewish diaspora and when uh, uh, people of the Muslim faith arrived and when people of Arab uh, uh, lineage arrived in uh, what's uh, currently known as Israel, and all of that is incredibly complicated, and it requires nuanced discussions, and that's what you do not get uh, in this current environment. What you get are slogans and bumper stickers, and uh, everybody takes something different away from that, and the, that way uh, we don't make any progress towards finding a common ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and, if, and we're only talking about one example, right? I mean, this problem, there's minefields in every single conversation with this person. Um, actually, I was having a conversation with two, but one in particular threatened me with freaking out. <laughs> and again, a young person, I say younger in their 30s. As young, the older I get, the younger they are, right, uh, in their 30s. And what shocked me, though, I, I, I just can't imagine that kind of threat. Um, but but this it's, it's a minefield talking about everything. You know, and I'm sitting there having this conversation. We, we, we slipped, and I don't want to go far away in this uh, because we have a thing here about anti-Semitism versus, I, I, I would say, anti-Israeli government. Two different things. 
you and I are pretty much both anti the U.S. government these days, not not the institution itself, but how it's being managed. Am I anti-American? I don't think so. You, I don't think so about you either. Um, and and that that we can't even get over that. But that, I, I told him in the conversation. Did you know that that uh, for the longest period of time it was it was racist to not call color people color people. In fact, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was created by <laughs> blacks or the United Negro College Fund, hmm, created by blacks. You better not call them Negro, though. That's way too close to a horrible word that's been used to describe blacks. But they didn't know that, and that's part of the generational problem, not understanding how cultures evolve. And they want to wake up today and act like everyone who uh, existed before they came along all had the worst of intentions when they were simply trying to figure, out, figure it out, which we're still trying to do today. But many simply believe that we now know what works. And you and I both know that a lot of stuff that's sacred now, how long ago was it when we had to call blacks African-American? Now they're offended by that. That wasn't that long ago, David. And so we're still right. trying to figure it out. And it's dangerous when we pretend we know it all. It, well, absolutely. And and I think the way I think of it is it's sort of evolutionary. I'm uh, 74 years old, so I'm kind of old and crusty. And I can remember when the N-word was commonly used when I was growing up in a town that had no black people in it. Uh, it was just a general term of disapprobation that you applied to anybody. And uh, and 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 we evolve as a society, and in that evolution, uh, we become more sensitive to what these words mean to uh, uh, people in uh, uh, marginalized groups. And and then you get uh, the what's very confusing for a lot of uh, white folks and a lot of straight folks is when uh, the N word gets reclaimed by black people, or uh, queer gets reclaimed by the LGBTQ plus community. And that's real confusing because it's one thing to uh, it's one thing for uh, a, a black American to use the N word, quite another for a white person to use that same word. Uh, and uh, same thing with queer. You know, it's very commonly used in the LGBTQ plus community uh, uh, towards others, um, but it requires a certain sensitivity in the use of the word when it's used by straight people. So I think we're in a constant state of evolution with what those words mean. And for us old folks, and I, I, I'm speaking uh, for your listeners that might be in my age category, because I know you're just a young whippersnapper. Uh, but for <laughs> yeah, I'm only folks, my early 60s. <laughs> 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 but uh, we do need to uh, we do need to kind of stay current with the times and realize that things that we didn't consider the least bit offensive, you know, at one point in time, are considered offensive now. So if your goal is to offend somebody, then go ahead and say it. Uh, but if you want to have a conversation, you try to avoid words that uh, uh, you try to avoid words that you know is going to push buttons for people. Um, but I again, I, I don't know. Um, I, I think it, it requires a certain amount of uh, willingness to understand how dynamic and how much you see this is constantly evolving. It isn't just newly evolved. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's not like it's old. It's constantly new. It's a state of flux. It, it requires a certain amount of tolerance. What a funny use of words. I think by 
progressives that are illiberal rather than liberal in their thinking to uh, say, oh, okay, I see where he's coming from. They want, they want whites to figure out where they're coming from. Uh, Jews want non-Jews to figure out where they're coming Everyone wants, certainly the, the Palestinians, they want others to figure it out. But I think that's a two-way street, David, but I don't see any signs indicating that that's a true value or a priority and that there should be a, a, a little bit of grace for ignorance a little bit of tolerance for people uh, ba based on age, where they came from. I don't see a whole lot of that. And it, it's, so, uh, it's so triggering, as you pointed out, which, by the way, is being triggered is voluntary. We, we volunteer to be triggered. Uh, we can right. just as easily go, oh, this, this is an old white guy <laughs> yeah. talking to me. Uh, I'm going I'm to let, let there be slack there because, you know, this is what he was raised with, and just see if we can have a more subtle, you know, a more sensible conversation. And that is so hard to do. Um, and we've kind of meandered, which we like to do, which is why my segment with you is one of the longest segments I do every uh, every time, you know, every month, uh, because of the fact, A, I enjoy our conversations, but B, we like to meander. Um, <laughs> but, you know, tying it all back into what we're talking about Good luck in the current culture of going anti-government, anti-Jewish, anti-government, anti-Israeli government, anti-Semitic. Good luck yeah. with those, yeah. which I don't think it are at all blurred lines, but somehow are in our current culture. Well, I think what's happened is that there is a desire among people that are uh, – uh, in favor of, of Israel and even in some cases the current Israeli government to uh, uh, brand anybody that's critical of uh, Israel uh, as anti-Semitic. Uh, and that includes Jews who are critical of uh, Zionism. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it is a complicated conversation, but uh, it's easy to simplify it by simply calling somebody anti-Semitic if they've got problems with what the current uh, Israeli government is doing to the Palestinian people, both in the Gaza Strip, but also the settlers in the West Bank. Uh, uh, none of this uh, really sits very well with the, uh, the image of, uh, of, of Israel as this vibrant modern democracy that uh, uh, protects everybody's rights, and uh, it just doesn't seem to fit the situation on the ground particularly well. Uh, no, but that in and of itself makes, uh, uh, you know, I guess uh, some people would call me anti-Semitic because I'm criticizing Israel. Well, I criticize the American government a hell of a lot more often than uh, Israel, and uh, I consider myself a very patriotic American. Uh, and I think patriotism means being able to look at the things where your country doesn't measure up to its best uh, to its potential, and you criticize it. And uh, yes. so I think we're on the same page that it's a lot easier, certainly with America, because we're Americans. <laughs> Neither of us right. are Israeli. So talk it's about your own family, to... right? They'll talk about yeah. other people's families. It's, it's basically that concept trans translates to um, U.S. view of uh, other countries and Americans' right. views of other countries. Yeah, I get that. And there's no question about it. Um, it, it, you know, again, very complicated. And, and when you talk about, when you look at Mein Kampf, which I actually read, and so many people haven't, Hitler's, Hitler's book, his, his uh, yeah. thesis, 
You know, and you read that, and you know, my, my listener may not, you read that book and you go, oh, I see why uh, Jewish people seem so hypersensitive, right? right. Because of the incredible, right. bold, huge assumptions the very, very small distance between certain positions that they had that was that the Nazis had that were hypothetical anyway and how they leaped into reality and public policy. I can get that that uh, hypersensitivity. Um, you know, you're talking about uh, a population that, uh, uh, you know, a country that has been without, was without land from uh, 80, 70 until uh, 1948. And how all of a sudden they look back and they're now the victimizers in the current very bi, uh, binary uh, world we live in. To uh, they, they went from victims to victimizers somewhere along the way, and they don't know how did that happen. And um, you know how does a what less than two percent of the population is Jewish, and yet they're the this massive dominant force. I don't know, and so I get it. I'm not saying they're right. And again, I'm very critical of the Israeli government as much to what it's doing to its own people as I am to their neighbors. You know, when I talk my criticism about the Israeli government, like the ideas of due process, the ideas of holding uh, other branches of government accountable, you can't hold branches of government accountable if you defang one of the other branches, which is what this government has tried to do. You know, and people are trying to figure out, you know, what the prime minister is about or what he's like. You know, I, a lot of people say he's a Trump wannabe. I think Trump is a Benny wannabe <laughs> because <laughs> Benjamin has been able to get away. Netanyahu has been able to get away with stuff that, that uh, Trump could only breathe of. And his larger objectives, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm sure the love is great, right, <laughs> in terms of shared values and beliefs. And so, you know, in the end, so we had this conversation, and I think the takeaway I would like to convey is that try to look at the different perspectives. Recognize that everyone comes to a conversation, including one as triggering as this one, with a lot of history, a lot of background, uh, their ethnicity, um, you know, and, and they live in cultures where I hear reasonable conversations uh, among uh, the Muslim population when it comes to uh, the Jew Jewish population. I hear that, and those people are threatened with their lives, just like if someone is apologetic for why um, those who are of a Muslim or a Palestinian background come with their views. It's, it's virtually impossible in the current culture. So it begins with me. And it begins with you. It begins with the individual, uh, and and hopefully nations catch catch up with it. But this imposing, this arm twisting, this you know real um, you know coercive approach has never worked. It never has worked. So we have to. It really comes back down to individual responsibility, which is what this series has been about right from the very beginning. Absolutely, and I think the uh, the the need to have uh, respectful conversations with people you disagree with is the only way you're going to get any um, smarter, any uh, more knowledgeable about where people are coming from. And uh, I think that's the, that's the challenge: is we get more hyperbolic about everything we're saying, and everything is reduced down to a bumper sticker. Uh, not much, uh, not much uh, learning is going on, and that's unfortunate because 
Uh, it's not like the uh, pro-Palestinian narrative versus the pro-Israeli narrative are categorically right and categorically wrong. They both uh, uh, have elements of truth in them, and they both have ways of of looking at the world through a particular lens, and it's only through looking at both sides that you're going to be able to get a handle on uh, uh, possible, out, you know, desirable outcomes that would be good for both the Israeli and the Palestinian people. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, ultimately, we go on various paths when we talk. It sounds like there may be disagreement there, but surprisingly, uh, we find our, ourselves in a very similar place. This is just really hard. And that's part of the problem. It's very, very easy to live in a black and white world. And, of course, don't be fooled. If you live in that world, you're more miserable than those who are willing to do the work of nuance. You're more miserable uh, because so much is outside of your control. And you put people in these boxes, and it's just set up really to make you miserable. And the nuance work that I try to do, not always successful, uh, but I try to do, and I, and I believe you try to do, is not easy. But in the end, I think we're happier and more reasonable, and we can have a lot more people that we can enjoy conversations with than those who really walk, hate to use the terminology, but it really fits, lockstep when it comes to the way they think about people. Uh, absolutely. I think that one of the things that I enjoy most is I have a couple of conservative friends, believe it or not, and uh, we can go to, you know, talking points really quickly. And I go, well, why don't we do something else? Why don't we figure out the areas where we actually agree? And surprising how many points you do agree on doesn't mean you're going to settle all of them. Confined through respectful dialogue that there's a lot of areas where people on opposite ends of the political spectrum can say, okay, I, I, I get that. I see where you're coming from. I agree with that part of what you're saying. And after a while, you find out that you've got a whole lot of agreement uh, and uh, just a few areas where you disagree. Yeah. Yes, it's interesting. I, I have uh, uh, one of my best friends. We go back to middle school, one of my, my longest friends, and we uh, 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 he lives in a different me. I visit that city uh, not only to see my family, but I like to see him. And so we keep in touch on Facebook, et cetera. Uh, he's, he's conservative. He's more of a traditional conservative. He has problems with Trump just like I do, um, but not like I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean, and and so yeah. um, you know I, I'll say things about Trump that uh, are are very critical. I think Trump is one of the most dangerous politicians in history, in my opinion. And I'll say things like that, and next thing you know, he'll talk about Biden. And uh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. And he'll start, you know, like setting it up where he wants to defend Biden, and I'm like, so what's your point? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to defend either one of these guys. You know, and that's this binary view. Uh, you know, I call it the cult parties. Those two have so much, and those two parties have so much in common because the most important issue being uh, the belief that if you vote for anyone other than them, you're wasting your vote. And, and that is such a dis dangerous proposition. Proposition. They talk about the lesser of two evils. I talk about the evil of two lessers. And I wish I'd come up with that. <laughs> I love that saying. I'm not sure it's origins. Um, but that is a much, much bigger problem. And I, I tell them, I say, hey, so what's your point? I'm not defending uh, Biden. That's, that's for darn sure. <laughs> I thought we were talking about Trump. <laughs> uh, so anyway... 
Very good conversation, very hard conversation. You know, it goes back to one of our big things that you be, you know, as, as Gandhi said, right, be the change. If you want change, be the change. Don't expect the public policy to do it. Especially don't expect the media to do it. Be the change. Part of that is challenging our, our thoughts, challenging conventional wisdom, uh, getting out of a camp, an ideological camp, when you certainly means, you know, I can't really tell you how many Trump uh, people have told me, you know, what your problem is, Kevin, is you, you keep looking at these various news perspectives, and that's what's missing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so you want me to just look at one, uh, you know, one message, and that would be the one of Trump. And, oh, well, it works for me, and not. And, uh, you know, so I'll, as you know, I'm, I, like I said, right of center with the libertarian streak. That's the best way to describe me. I like reading um, uh, the New York Times, though. I, I look at the New York Times every single day at center. I read the Washington Post. Not cover to cover. Nobody does. Anyone does that, they're lying. Says they do that, they're lying. There's a lot of pages there. But I look at the Washington Post, which is, I believe, left of the New York Times. I need that perspective because I'm pretty solid in what my beliefs are. Of course, I read a magazine, you know, and I look at more conservative uh, content as well. Uh, but that's it. I'm not a hostage to any of those views. I'm not going to be a hostage to any of those views. Well, how do I prevent myself stuck in an echo chamber by me, is by making sure I'm not voluntarily being in an echo chamber. Absolutely, and I think that uh, I try to do the same uh, dabbling with uh, a media like uh, the Wall Street Journal and uh, Reason Magazine and uh, just to get that different perspective and to understand how uh, issues of the day are being framed by people coming from either a con you know, business conservative or uh, more of a libertarian worldview. And they're not the same as you've pointed out several times. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's things where there's agreement, but there's a lot of areas that are fundamentally different. Always love talking to you. Always have a good time. It's always among my longer segments, but it always feels like I'm the fastest. And so I, I that that's always good, right? Uh, when I think of anything being too long, it's usually a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment or <laughs> something like that. And I don't that whenever I visit with Dr. David Dozer and uh, always enjoy having him on the program and look forward to our next conversation. And as am I, and thank you so much for having me on. I'm Kevin Price. This is the nationally syndicated Price of Business show. Stay tuned for more after this. <laughs> 